So I genuinely did not believe I was in a prison cell. I was like, no, punch this wall, I'm gonna wake up. I punched it and I was like, this is happening. I am here. Oh my God, it was horrendous. First two nights, I would say, were, were the worst. And then th- th- by the third day, I was like, right, come on then, let's get to work. <laughs> I'm Neil Mags, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. Cast your mind back to the spring of 2021. The Kill the Bill protests in Bristol. All kicked off outside Brywell Police Station during the protest against the police and crime bill. Today's guest was right in the thick of it. So much so that she was arrested, charged and eventually jailed for nine months after pushing a wheelie bin into a burning police car. She was cleared of riot, but still served time in prison. She ended up spending her prison time in Eastwood Park and we talked to her about her time there, but also whether she has any regrets when she looks back on the riot. And prison, does it really rehabilitate She's a prison abolitionist, and she also wants to do away with the police completely. Is that a practical position for 2023? We examine that and much more. Enjoy. Hi, Jasmine. Hello. It's pretty well documented about the riot, which we want to talk to a little bit about later and about some of your experiences in prison. But what led you into activism? I think there's been multiple factors as to why I moved towards activism. And that's probably the case with quite a lot of people. But for for me personally, I grew up in a deaf household. So I was very passionate about disability rights. And then I went vegan when I was about 20. So then I became interested in animal rights. There's a lot of lawyers in my family. So I've always had an interest in not going to study law because that would be insane. But (laughs) just a general learning about law and, and human rights. And then at some personal experiences in my childhood led me to become quite passionate about women's rights and domestic abuse victims and sexual assault victims. And as I grew older and sort of experienced the world for myself, I couldn't see structures in place that were supporting victims nor dealing with the perpetrators. And then when once I had an understanding of how those were handled in, in, sort of in like institutions, I did, it just wasn't, I could see that it wasn't working. And yeah, so in, in, in that regard, you take things into your own hands. And that's a trial and error situation. But then I've moved towards basically community grassroots organisations and then it just spiralled from there. And where, and where was this? Is, the, is this in Bristol or is, it, or is this somewhere else? So it really kicked off when I moved to Oxford. I went to Oxford to go to university and I learnt a lot about the mental health of Oxford students. I worked doing a lot of, sort of self-care programs with Oxford students because the rate of people just leaving. Is that taking- at, the, at Oxford University or the old I worked, yeah, I worked at the Oxford University oh. and the, yeah I mean the the, this, the self-harm rates and just the, the depression rates were just through the roof and I was experiencing that's interesting because the perception of Oxford is it, of it being you know a kind of elitist place where the great and the good go isn't it but lots of people are struggling there. Oh big time I mean there, I mean there are just some people that you, you know, but aren't just naturally academic and then through their family and, and social context or whatever, get pushed towards going to Oxford. Like that's the, the parents' main goal for their children is to go to Oxford, whether the kid wants it or not. And then by the time they get there, they're like, well, actually, this isn't for me. 
And also, I think they were the golden child for a long time. Then they get to Oxford and realise they're not the golden child anymore. They're in the pool of golden children. And they haven't been given the support structures on how to deal with that sort of rejection. Um, so like the, the meltdown is quite severe. So, what did you study there? Uh, so I studied at the adjacent, I, I went to Oxford Brooks, but I worked at Oxford. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, but which is interesting because I, I was quite ill when I was at university and I moved, like I was bed bound for about a year and I couldn't study and I didn't want to study and I resented being at university. And so I started just doing activism and doing volunteering. Somebody I, I, I respected said, whatever you need from the world, you need to put out there first. And I was like, okay, I need, I need fucking love. <laughs> so, uh, so I got involved with so many groups and activist groups and community groups in Oxford. So, like, so this like, was this was at the actual Oxford University more than yeah, Oxford was, Brook, like, yeah. In communities, there was like community stuff, and then there was then I worked with Oxford students, actual Oxford students, to put together programs to support Oxford students. And then I joined. I, then I did obviously did unions and stuff at my own university. So I did. I went to university and did anything but studying, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people do that. Do, do, when people ask you where, where you go, do you just say Oxford or do you oh, say God, Oxford Brooks? I, I mean, I, I do. Well, it goes two ways, doesn't it? I think if you want to not, you want to distance yourself from it, you say Oxford Brooks. But I know somebody who went to Oxford Brooks, and he only ever says Oxford. And, and technically he's right, isn't he? But it's not until you pin it down that you realise it is actually Oxford Brooks, not Oxford oh, yeah, University. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I even forget that I went to university because I just felt like I lived in Oxford for three years and then just yeah. worked and did activism. Yeah. I just forget that so I was where, doing you, Where were you from originally, Jasmine? Bristol. I am Bristol born and bred. Oh, you are Bristol born and bred. Oh, uh, okay. Wait, which part? Well, I grew up in Patchway. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that where yeah, your family, yeah. family is? Well, no, they moved. So they, they're, they, they moved a bit more out of, out of the centre. But yeah. Uh, so you then, so when you came back after university, then yeah. Yes, yeah, so I moved back in with my parents, and then realised, oh my gosh, I can't do that. I, can, I, I don't want chores again, for goodness' sake. So I then yeah. But just well, that's interesting. That's interesting, then, isn't it? Just just on a side wink to that, which we are going to get onto a bit later, is that one of the criticisms of the protesters by the mayor was that they were all out of towners, students coming into Bristol, rioting. But you're 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 one of our own. Yeah, I mean, that's, bread. Yeah. that's quite absurd. That's quite absurd. I, think, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of the people that they targeted were homeless and didn't have a place of residence or were squatting or, yeah, there's a few people that didn't live in Bristol. But they, that was, as far as we were concerned, people were coming to Bristol for a protest and vigil for Sarah Everard. It wasn't, there wasn't, an, a, a, that I know of, a, a plan to then go and smash Bridewell up. Yeah. Let's get into that in a minute. But what um, I'm also keen to know a little bit about your you were campaigning for animal rights, prison welfare, mental health awareness. So there's been something you, you know that you've been quite passionate about for for some time. Yeah, Social justice. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've probably touched on everything to be honest. <laughs> I've completely okay. around all of the social movements. Party politics, not so much for you. Oh, that's a question, isn't it? Uh, I just don't. See, I can't engage with it. I just don't like whenever I feel quite hopeless in, t- in 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 terms of like party politics. I just I can do more work and more good by engaging with my local community because party like they they, they won't direct action is is more you feel that's more effective. Hundred percent. Yeah. So you come in then on so March the twenty first, twenty twenty one, which was the protest against the police and crime bill. Yeah. Presumably at this point you're a fairly experienced person who's been involved in quite a lot of protests before. Yes, although if you look at the footage of me, you wouldn't think so because I wore a bloody yellow skirt. 
And obviously, when you go to a protest, you're supposed to dress so you're not distinguishable. But it oh, might so be- you, gave, you gave the game away, did you? Oh, big time. App, app, yeah. app, like, amateur move that was. So, but if anything, I use that in my defense because I was like, well, if I really was going there and planning on kicking off, then I wouldn't have dressed so flamboyant. I feel like all of my experience went out of the window on that day because it was like, it was something I've never experienced before. I didn't, I just, the brutality was insane. And also, I don't think I've ever been to a protest sort of thing like that at that capacity. Just talk um, me through it then. Talk me through like when you arrived and at what point the, the mood or the atmosphere switched and changed and your perspective on on the situation, almost just like a build up to it. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't even go, bloody go. I, it was, it started at 2 p.m. And in fact, the most of the sort of posters and, and flyers I'd seen were emphasizing Sarah Everard. And to be honest, I was more going to commemorate her. I didn't actually have much of an understanding about the bill. In fact, I don't even recall seeing kill the bill, damp, like flyers or anything before I even got there. Not that I remember anyway, but yeah. anyway, so I got there, Parked up, got there about two-ish, and then was at College Green. And it was just, it felt like a family event. It felt like every other march I've been to, where people stand around, people place flowers around a certain tree, people talk to each other, people share stories about similar experiences. And it's, it almost feels like a, a sort of a mourning period where people just come together and are like, right, well, fucking same. Like I've been through similar, you know, male abuse and rape accusations and stuff. They've all, they've all, they're all sharing like a, a common trauma, essentially. And then as as protests go, generally there's a march, which isn't unheard of. And in Bristol, I think, well, I, I don't think it's probably known to everyone, but there is a general route that you take when you do a march in Bristol. You just go down Park Street and then whip around, go head to go up like St. Nicholas Street, go to Castle Park, mooch there for a bit and then come back round. And I think quite a lot of them will go past Bridewell and then return to College Green, which is where they always start. That's all. That's generally how things go, and everything did seem fine until we walked down Union Street. And I remember being at the top of Union Street and looking down and seeing riot police at the bottom, which the police categorically like they deny, which is just insane because it's all on footage. But um, yeah, they were all there in their in their gears, like many vans. I can't remember if they were horses by that point. I can't remember, and it just that seemed odd. And that set a tone. People were a bit like more apprehensive. So you'd been there for, you know, how long up until this point and everything was quite peaceful? For about an hour, an hour and a half. An hour or so, okay, yeah. And everyone was walking and marching and and this was the point when suddenly it could, it it potentially, or the warning sign of when it changed. Yeah, I mean, the mood shifted, but nothing had happened. There was no incident at that point that happened. I see, okay, with you. And to me, who's been to quite a lot of protests, it was quite alarming to see the volume of, of police there, especially because I can't remember what the dates, the, how the dates followed. I can't remember because there was a few protests, which obviously people attended. And there was yeah. an incident in Clapham where the police became quite violent towards protesters there. So I can't, I can't remember if that was before or after. Right. But anyways, yeah. obviously a lot of people there wouldn't have, there'd be a distrust of the police. And a lot of people there were, there commemorating Sarah Everard. And they just killed one of us. So we, you know, the, the, just to see them it kitted out like an army was quite alarming. But yeah, I suppose it's been a while because there was speeches, there were poems, there were songs, quite a nice vibe. And then you got to Bridewell and it was basically a, a line of police officers that were restricting movement and you couldn't keep marching. Were um, they protecting the police station at this point? Were they just protecting the road? I, I genuinely did not put two or two together because I, <laughs> sounds nuts, but I didn't even remember Bridewell even existing there. During my trial, I remember the judge saying, well, somebody shouted, let's march to Bridewell. So you must have known what the plan was. I was like, I, A, I didn't hear that. And B, if someone did shout Bridewell, I wouldn't have, that wouldn't have. 
You wouldn't have thought police station if someone did, no. I really wouldn't that Anyway, yeah. so we walked around and then when I saw the line there, I was like, well, why why are they stopping us here? And then I looked over and I was like, okay, oh shit. Okay, that the police station's here. I was like, but I mean, again, I was thinking if I want to play devil's advocate, I was like, okay, if I was a police officer, what would be my stress? Okay, that we would just stop here. But rarely that happens. They will march past, maybe, maybe they'll stop there, do some speeches, and then carry on. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? They were like, there was no indication that this was going to turn violent or this was going to be about smashing things up. So, but yeah, we got there. What was the first point? What was the first point when it was like, oh, something's happened. Somebody threw something or something. Was there there like a a brick in the wall moment? I remember seeing an officer push a protester and they were from now I was like, like, basically, so when, when we got up to the Bribar police station, because there were hundreds of people there, by the time that everyone had gone on that corner, it was quite impossible to then be like, everyone, let's go back. Because that, I mean, it was loud. People were chanting. There's just no way to communicate. And we were blocked in. We weren't kettled by this point, but we were blocked in. And so we kind of just waited there thinking like, okay, maybe the police will then escort and then move us along. But obviously that didn't happen. But then I remember it, there becoming a bit of a heated energy. And then I saw one of the officers with their shield really ram it into a, a, a protester. And I was like, right, that is not good. And then obviously if everyone surrounding that thought, well, fuck this and there was a bit of pushback and then it just got a bit out of hand to be honest like the the, the day the more the time passed like the, the the more i try and forget because obviously I, I remember being questioned like this on the on the stand yeah sure i've just sort of yeah yeah i, I just think it's the flashpoint i suppose so it was a so it was a, a police officer sort of pushing with a with a shield and then was there sort of ripples of discontent and the energy started to build Hundred percent, because like if you imagine, I mean, if anyone's been to a gig, any frictional movement that's going on at the front of the of the gig kind of then ripples back in the, and it impacts everybody at the back. And there was a lot of pushing and throwing, a lot of energy, and it was like a current. You couldn't really stand on your own two feet. And there were there were literally lots of people. And that road isn't massive; that isn't wide, so yeah. it was quite easy to be influenced. Like your position was influenced quite easily. But I can fundamentally say because I was at the front line the majority of the time. And I, they, we did not hit first. I, I like, and I'll take that to the grave. We did not yeah. hit first because nobody was there with the intentions of getting violent. People only started getting violent, and there was, you know, there were protesters that really did get violent, but they only did that in response. It was provoked. It was never initiation. And I'll, I'll argue that to the cows come home. At, at what point did you get angry? If you did, I don't think I ever really got angry. I mean. I'm I'm chanting a lot and I'm I'm doing a lot I'm starting a lot of the chants but I wouldn't say I was particularly ang- passionate is the word I would use passionate um, okay yeah passionate then. yeah but, riled, uh, yeah a bit riled what did you feel you know I'm just going to read out some of so in, this is in the court now so I'm quoting you 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 and you've admitted this shouting fuck the police you also admitted writing graffiti sluts against cops on a police vehicle and you shouted we will burn your fucking cars. You 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 told a mounted police officer, get off your high horse, bitch. Yeah. So you know that's quite emotive language. So you were getting in the in the moment. You were feeling charged up a little bit. Yeah. I mean that's fair to say. I mean so the fuck the police saying like a cab for instance or that kind of thing are relatively popular terms. I think those was I was shouting those once the there was a lot of movement, a lot of pushing. Oh, I will tell you actually there, there was one point. I think the fuck the police bit was when there's quite a significant bit where there's a, a police fan and a lot of protesters are rocking it, which I was not a fan of because they couldn't possibly have seen what was on the other side of the van, you know, protesters, police, dogs, whatever. And But then a line of police officers came around and just start beating them with batons. And I was like, I'm not being funny, but 
there's better ways to handle it. That was just, they reacted on impulse as opposed to being strategic. I mean, it was quite clear that there was never a plan in place on how, how to, how to deal with this if, if it did get violent. Um, and you said you said you said in court that you were you protected a, a woman who'd been hit by police and that you weren't there to fight the police or to get into Bridewell Police Station. No, 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 not at all. My main question: Do you have any regrets about any of your behaviour on the night? No, God, no, absolutely not. Because I mean, I, I, I suppose I don't even regret using the foul language. The get off your high horse thing was quite funny because the officer was on a horse and trying to be a dick, and. Do you know what I thought was funny? But also it's quite common practice when you're at a protest and things get a bit out of hand and people people's egos get in the way and they start getting a bit fighty and competitive. Doing mm. chants is a good is a it sounds weird, but it's a form of de-escalation because you then ground the, the protesters on the purpose, you remind them why they're there. And also like because it, it'd be it'd be a individuals fighting, you know, ever so often. And it's just good to 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 remind them, like, you're not the only person here. Okay, so when you act out like this, you're impacting yeah. the rest of this group. Um, you also admitted, let me jump in, you also admitted writing graffiti, sluts against cops on a police vehicle. <laughs> and so so you don't you don't feel that? You don't, no, no. I mean, I think the response, I suppose, from the Bristol public was quite mixed, I think, depending on your political position or depending on perhaps even what part of the city you're from. But some people did feel quite shocked by this, quite outraged. What What, what, what would you say to that? to them i mean police are killing people daily the met police have like three officers in court every week till 2026 for rape and sexual assault accusations so me little old me with a sharpie pen writing sluts against cops i mean if you're worried about that then you you, you need to get your head out the ground because that's it, it's not really comparable and do you think it's, hyper, think it's a hyperbolic response what people being annoyed at the yeah protest? yeah yeah to a certain extent but i, I also put it down to People want to feel safe and we've been, I was going to say programmed, but that's probably not the right word, but we've been taught that we trust the police. So when you see lots of people fighting against it, it, it doesn't make sense to them. Like we're fighting against the thing that's supposed to protect us. So I think mm. it comes down to ignorance because the police don't work. The police don't protect us. At best, police will just do some admin after a crime's been committed, which my nan could do. I mean, I think it's more but you could You could argue if there weren't loads of people protesting in the town centre, which took police resources away from dealing with actual crime where people you know do want to be policed that actually this is deflecting away from that i would then if anyone argued that i would argue i would i would well, ask them to to say give me an example of when you've called the police and they've turned up on time to prevent a crime from happening and they don't they turn up after a crime's been committed do some poxy little report and then never really follow up specifically when it's involving women, domestic violence and sexual assault cases. They completely, completely ne- neglect that sort of side of crime, which also in itself doesn't it, is happening at the hands of people like police officers themselves anyway. So I don't think we were deflecting too much. But, and, and also half of Bristol were there anyway, so don't worry about it. But also I think the bigger picture, which I think people f- refuse, not even just like ignore, but refuse to look at, is we were there because that bill means it will increase police powers and not in the way that will look after you and your assets and stop you from getting raped on the walk home. They are going to use those to execute force against demographics that are already over-policed. Sure. So, but the flip side to that, though, Jasmine, is in effect, you could argue that the riot played into the hands of the government because they doubled down on their policy after that, didn't they? It had the opposite effect as what people intended it to do. I don't think so because, like, the, the document of the bill was three hundred pages long, and I can't. I, I mean, I probably count on one hand how many people actually read it. So I don't think people understood what the bill was involving. Plus, a lot of the things that the bill were passing were just emphasising 
policies that were already in place. So they weren't but really... But they were bringing in, they were bringing in things around denying certain rights to protest, things about getting uh, custodial sentences for, for, you know, which obviously Bristol was at the forefront with, with Colston putting down statues and things like that. They were, you know, law was being changed. And some people would argue, I think, I think even people that may be sympathetic with the cause that strategically what this actually did was embolden not just the Conservative Party's policy, but embolden their their base to be outraged by this and say, no, we now need to bring this in. You know, look at look at this, look at this, you know, this outrageous behaviour. You know, no, re- this is why we need to bring this in. Okay, then then what triggered the introduction of it in the first place? If they're saying, okay, that the, your response to it is what's justifying its existence, what triggered its initiation? Why was it even proposed in the first place? And it was because there was an ever-growing disliking of the Tory party and distrust of the police. People were fed up. People don't want to be submissive to the state. They just don't. And so I think they were scared that people were going to fight and kick off, and they did. Of, yeah, of course. Of course. Which what happened, you could argue, like you, I mean, you just said yourself that I think that the, the, the police, what you saw was the, the first action that ignited this was actually from the police. Maybe you were walked into a trap. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm still going to protests now and with the bill having passed. And I and, and I can sit here categorically and say, oh, I'd do it all again. I, I mean, I'm I'm quite content putting my liberty on the line if I think that the big the picture is bigger than me, the context is bigger than me. Also, I'm a white woman, so I've got absolute privilege. I'm not. I, I mean, I was even though I was attacked both at the protest and in prison, it's nothing compared to my trans comrades, my black comrades. You know, it's and to immigrants and refugees. Like, it's my as far as I'm concerned, it's my duty to put myself on the front line. You're, you're using your privilege for a, a greater cause. I wouldn't even say, like even say it's a greater cause. I just what a greater it, cause, but a, a social social cause because you can. Well, yeah, exactly. I just think that's the the right thing to do. There's a couple of ways to look upon this, isn't there? There is the there is the perspective of, and I think this is probably what the some Labour politicians in the city felt that were probably were anti the bill, and then felt, oh God, you've just done the government's work for them. That was their argument. There's that side, and there's people who were just you know outraged because. They see the police as something that protects them, a, 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 a sanctified institution, and seeing those images of the police car burning was was quite visual and quite iconic and quite visceral. Both sides could have been slightly put out of joint by this. I think that the the, the other interesting thing is that what were the real politics behind this? You know, some people could say this is is this not just like juvenile violence and kicking off? Where is the actual politics, and where is the actual change that's happened off the back of this? That's interesting. I think you raise it the point that just because it's like you shouldn't just do activism because you think it's going to have some long term benefit or because you think it's going to make policy change. You need to do you need to do activism because you think it's the right thing to be doing. People that condemn the riots and the protests or whatever, if you ask them what would you rather us do, they wouldn't have much of a suggestion. They say, write to your MPs, do it passively, do flyers, do this and the other. That's not working. That's not working. Plus, Nobody would have known what the bloody bill was if they, if these protests across the country did not happen. It, it might seem like we put ourselves at a disadvantage by it turning violent, not that we had any control over it because really it was just in self-defence. But also yeah. nobody would have known what that bill was if there wasn't so much coverage. So it raised it. an awareness of the bill to the wider population. And obviously it was a national, even international story, wasn't it? So it wasn't just confined to Bristol. Um, and we're having a conversation about abolition because I have gone to prison and I've seen what it's, it looks like. I remember saying yeah. on the staff, you put me in prison, I'll come out worse. And I am. Yeah. Yeah. I've come well, out go on to, yeah, I'm interested to, to, to put your brains on that. But just the point you just made, Dan, is interesting when you said about the people would write to their MP or they would try and 
go by traditional kind of means. It's kind of what happened with the Colson statue, actually, wasn't it? That people did, for a number of years, try and go down the a different route and nobody listened. So, so then it was pulled down. Yeah, exactly. And then look what happened to the, our, our iconic buildings and our schools and our art theatres that, that changed their names, that, you know, that felt pressure from, from the community. The statue pulled down and the Kill the Bill protests are quite good to compare against because the four, the Colston Four were obviously acquitted. And I think it's quite easy to get people on side for the purpose of pulling down the statue. And even people that said, you know, well, that's criminal damage, la da da da. Like, well, then you're then you're you're basically arguing for racism and for that to prevail and for us. Well, to- the re- the response, as I said, the response from leading politicians, including the mayor, was very different to I think it was poetic justice. He called the, the Colson statue to <laughs> the kill the bill protest when it was condemned immediately. And I think there was a letter that went out for all the leaders. I'm doing speech marks, you know, community yeah. leaders or, or leaders of different organisations across the city condemning this without really knowing. The, the full ins and outs of, 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 of what happened, which exactly. is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Plus, like, I'm not sure how much of awareness there was around Pretty Patel becoming absolutely furious with Avid and Somerset Police for not stepping in and for yeah. not, you know, arresting on, on site and not intervening. And then obviously they got acquitted. And then they really, that's why I think they doubled down big time on on kill the bill i mean they were they they were prepped in, in that they got in touch with you know cardiff police and they really rounded up recruits they were fuming i think they were absolutely fuming cardiff i think they were the, most of the police that were at the the college green protest which was a few days later were actually came out came actually across the bridge didn't they from 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 wales yeah from cardiff they weren't even in somerset a lot of them yeah 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 big time and even Dorset, yeah. I think pulled out to Dorset yeah. as well. After a five-day trial, you were given a nine-month sentence for pushing a bin into a burning police car during the disturbance and struck by police batons and bitten by a police dog. You were cleared by a jury of the more serious charge of riot, correct? Yeah. yeah. But you were convicted of arson. Yeah. Judge James Patrick sentencing you told you you were very aware of the damage caused to police equipment and property paid out for out of national taxation for the benefit of the community. So what was it like being on trial first? What, what was that for, you know, pretty serious charges as well, if, if that had all gone through? Oh, my God, yeah. So I had, I, originally I was charged with... What would riot. you have got, sorry, if, if, if you'd have been guilty of all of the all of the things you were charged with? Well, between five and ten. Wow, wow. Well, I had, I had riot and then arson with intent. So arson with intent is like five on its own. So, I mean, 15, that would be the max. But obviously... I'd- you must have been shitting yourself a little bit then, be honest, at this point, no? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I just did, I didn't think I'd get found guilty because I genuinely didn't believe I'd broken the law. Okay, okay. So, so I, you, I was, you were confident then. You felt confident, yeah. Yeah, I felt relatively confident, and I, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm passionate about what. I was like, if I do go to prison, then I go to prison. I mean, because I still I would do it all again. So, yeah. I mean, so you've pres- never been to prison at this point? No, presumably, no, no. Had you had you had a criminal record for anything else? Don't tell me what, but had you had a criminal record? Any other protests? No. Okay, so this is your first experience then of being in a criminal court. That must have been quite a challenging experience. To an extent. I mean, because I've done so much activist work, I'm surrounded by really good support groups. And my lawyers were amazing and we did a lot of cross-exam prep. We went through my footage so much. And obviously there were so many defendants as well that we just, we all we all eventually got in contact with each other and supported each other. And every day my, the public gallery was full and overflowing. I never felt like I was going through it on my own. And I'd rather do prison again than the trial, put it that way. The trial okay. did suck because they completely obliterate your character. 
But yeah, that must be what's that, that, that? What's that feel like when they're doing that? When you're being cross-examined under the pump? Well, I'm an, I'm an Aries and qu- quite a stubborn bitch. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> okay, yeah. when they're yeah. like just passing absolute shit, I, I'm like, well, hang on a minute, come on. And I've got so to you're giving my- it. You're giving it back to them, then, Jasmine. Were you? Only a couple of times, like there was a bit where they were asking me, like, why? Okay, if you're if you're so innocent, why did you destroy evidence? And I was like, okay, well, I was watching Line of Duty at the time, and that's what it said to do. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I just yeah, yeah. like been passing remarks, but and then I looked at the jury, and I was like, look, I'm sorry if I seem, you know, like I'm not taking this seriously, but I use humour as like a coping mechanism, and I think they yeah. found it quite funny. Did they like you? What were they like to you, the jury? Were they were they sort of? Did you get a vibe from them? <laughs> yes, it's quite. I did get a good vibe. There were a couple of them. I was like, oh. I don't think she liked, but a lot of them were women. And I put a lot of emphasis on like why I was there in order to protect women. And so much of my footage was there, just me throwing my body in front of other women. So they watched me get battered. I mean, the, the CPS played an eight minute tape of me just being beaten the shit out of. And then whilst I'm being beaten up, I'm also screaming, stop hitting her. So I'm still, I'm being battered and then still worrying about the welfare of other women. And I think they right. watched and they were like, shit okay like and I, there was never any point where i even re- like i got bit by a dog and i still didn't react i just looked down on my leg and be like okay that's a german shepherd attached to my thigh fuck but do you, what do you mean like i and it was all, it was all captured and uh, so you're sat you're watching what do you think that must be a bit of a weird thing to sit there watching that in the court you i watched a lot yeah. of it before because during the prep for my trial the police had quite i say cleverly i don't want to give them that credit but had spliced the footage really reframe the context of certain videos and so i then in turn watched it myself and was like wait what i, I, I tried to keep away but they'll they'll cut it very cl- like cleverly and mm. i'm like oh, wait a minute. if you played the video for five seconds longer each side you'll have seen what what actually happened just pause the chat for a bit to tell you about the bristol cable we are a cooperative organization which means that we have members and uh, we want you to become one. If you jump onto the Bristol Cable website, you can find out how you can become a member. You can pay a pound, two pound, five pound, 10 pound a month, whatever. And you get a say in our structure. You can go to our AGMs, our events, come up with ideas on stories for the newspaper, guests for this show, ideas for documentaries, anything really. So if you are interested, then as I say, jump on the Bristol Cable website and check out how you can get involved. Back to the chat. Was your mum mum supportive of of what you did? How, how did she feel about it all? Well, I mean, I think my first protest was when I was in the womb. So, to be honest, okay, right. <laughs> yeah, she she's been active herself. You know, she was involved in the whole poll tax protests. Ah, <clears throat> uh, okay, so it's in the blood then. Yeah. And also, like, our family are very open-minded and we have these discussions and there's a lot of lawyers in our family, so we, can't, we, we don't shy away from these issues. But I'm definitely the first person in our family to be this, I don't, I don't want to use the word extreme because obviously that has connotations, but I'm, I, I, to have it taken this far, I'm like the first person to have gone to trial, for example. But no, my family were incredibly supportive, thankfully, which is obviously the case for a lot of families. So when you were not guilty of the more serious charges, how did you feel? I took a picture straight after I got found not guilty of riot, and I cannot. It was better than sex, mate. <laughs> really, really. It, Why? I was just in the public eye on my own, and when they said not guilty to riot, oh my god, I just collapsed in my. In, Did you? In, yeah, just I couldn't believe it. 
I could not believe it. And I wanted to go out into the jury dock and be like, thank you so fucking much. Thank you so much. I don't like people thinking I'm a bad character. I don't like people thinking ill of me. And even these 12 strangers, I just didn't want them to think I was there to cause harm because I just, I just wasn't. So that, that worried me. It was a relief that people didn't think I was there to just be a dick. I mean, if, even if you were there to just be a dick, then so fucking what? But like, I that was nice. That was nice that I had communicated well enough and that they believed me. And, and then really... you had to come back. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, yeah. How did it work? You were told not guilty for the more serious charges first? Yes, essentially. But what, is, what was very unique about my case was, so I got charged with riot with intent. Uh, with intent. The only footage, basically, is of me pushing a bin. And the bin is being pushed sort of parallel to the police car that's already on fire. And so defending yourself against arson with intent is different to defending yourself against simple arson because okay. with the arson with intent you've got to prove that if there was fire involved you didn't improve you didn't mean for it to then cause harm to other people and the jury found me not guilty of that because i mean i didn't set fire to anything nobody was harmed the the, the car that was already on fire had melted the car down and it was made out of metal so it wasn't going to spread but they were pushing to say you that it was intent I got found not guilty of arson with intent. But then so the judge said, what about simple arson? And I was like, what the actual fuck? As if he just suggested this brand new charge. And we said so we hadn't had a defense. We had a defense against simple arson. We had a whole fire report showing that the bin I pushed never got never was near enough to the car to then be set alight. The bin I pushed never ever caught a light. And if the bin did come into contact with the car, it wouldn't have set a light because it's made of bloody metal. And you don't need a science degree to know that that would have worked. So anyway, and also my argument was I was pushing the bin to, walk, to create a barrier between us and this new, this line of police officers, which is true. It's tr- it was a block, it was a classic protest technique to create blockades. And they were marching. They, they basically marched like five to 10 metres, like every 30 seconds. And so it was just a strategic thing. But... Obviously, we, I, we, honestly, we didn't even have a defence. We didn't even have time to defend that. They just went back into the jury room, came back out and said, yeah, guilty of arson. Right. Like, and what, like, so what did you feel like then? You just, you've, so you've just had this elation. You feel amazing. In your own words, it felt like sex. And then suddenly, bang. Yeah, then I thought, oh, fucking pregnant. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Shit. It was shock, like, oh, shock. What was the, what, what was the overriding feeling? Yeah. But also I was like, the jury don't understand that there was no... What the, what, how has this happened? How is that ha- like, it, and it happened so quickly. I was like, how have I just been charged with arson when nothing I touched caught a light? And I didn't, it, there was no, like, that made, it made no sense to me. It made no sense that I was being charged with arson. Nothing, all I did was push a bin. So in theory, every Tuesday, when I put my recycling out, I should be bloody going to prison again. I, so it, is this a stitch up then, do you think, a little bit? I mean, put it this way. So on, on the night of the protest, I went home and I called the police, which sounds absolutely horrendous. It's a rookie error. But I went home and I just can, couldn't believe the abuse I'd witnessed. And plus my leg was just pouring out of blood. And I rang the police and they played my call during the trial. And I was like, I'm calling you because I've been beaten up by countless officers and I don't know what to do. And they said, okay, the first question they asked were, who was you with? And I was like, I'm not, what the fuck? I'm not telling you who I was with. And then they said, can you send over any evidence? I was like, I'm not going to do that either. And they said, okay, we're going to refer you to an independent board, which is who you complain to about police brutality and violence and stuff like that. Anyway, a week later, I get a letter saying, okay, we're investigating this. Like we've watched some of the footage from the, like, the overarching protest. And they said, yeah, there's, there's a case here. A week after that, I was, in the, I was in the papers as a wanted person. A week after that, my, my investigation got quashed. So you can make your own conclusions on why uh, okay. I... Okay, uh, interesting. Okay, well, you got nine months. You were at Eastwood Park. Was that where the first prison you were in? Yeah, I was there the whole time. The whole time. And how long did you serve? Only 10 weeks in the end. 
Only 10 weeks. Okay. How was it for you? What why was the experience? I, I never know what to say when someone asks me that. It's changed me forever, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, you know, you know when people, when you're really happy and someone says, like, pinch me because I'm so happy. I punched the wall because I genuinely did not believe I was in a prison cell. I was like, no, punch this wall. I'm going to wake up. I, I genuinely like, punched it and I was like, this is happening. I am here. Felt and, a bad dream. Oh my God, it was horrendous. That first night, first two nights, I would say, were, were the worst. And then th- th- by the third day, I was like, right, come on then. Let's get to work. <laughs> and how did the other prisoners take to you? How did you find the whole social element? They how fucking you... loved me. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> they knew who I was when I got in there. Because you were you know, about to say that. you would have The fact you had a bit of media coverage, you would have come with some notoriety, which can sometimes go, I used to work in prisons and stuff, can sometimes go both ways with young offenders. You know, it either helps you or it can put your target on your head. Well, so inmates will watch the news at like 6 p.m. every night to see who's been like, who's in court and who's been sentenced and who's likely to come into the prison. Fortunately, I was everywhere. And I mean, you'll, you'll struggle to find anybody who respects the police in prison. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I was quite popular. Oh in- yeah. Okay. Cause you were giving it, you were giving it to the old bill. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Okay. Yeah, one bit where I went out yeah. into the yard and some, obviously I was the, I was the new person. So there's one girl who was trying to give me all the rules, like about not snitching and all that and the other. And yeah. one girl pulled my arm and twisted it. And on the back of my arm, I've got a cab tattooed. She said, look, she's anti-establishment. She isn't going to snitch on anyone. And then I knew. For those that don't know, what does ACAB stand for? All cops are bastards. Yeah. And which obviously is that's a debate in itself, isn't it? But anyway, but so that was nice that she was like, okay, look, she's not going to snitch. She's like, she's she's one of us. And I I just did feel accepted. And that was the first time I smiled. How long into your sentence was that? How long are you talking now? A few days. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I look at my diary because I wrote a diary every day in prison. And I... On my, th- my second journal entry, it was like, right, waking up tomorrow bright and early, let's do this. And like my attitude was, I was quite determined to make it, like to understand what prison was like. I was like, I've been given a unique opportunity as an yeah. activist to see what prison is like on the inside. There's something called, you probably know what they are, pr- pr- prison service instructions, which is basically how pr- prison officers are supposed to behave and what they're supposed to know. And obviously they don't know anything. So I read most of them before I went in to ensure that if I saw them, behaving out of turn i'd be like hang on a minute you're violating this this and this so i I had a great advantage again that i could read i could internalize a lot of information and i'm able to stand up myself and again there was so many inmates in there that couldn't do that so many that couldn't read couldn't could talk properly couldn't speak english and also just allowed themselves to be treated like criminals i'm like no the only thing you've given up here is your liberty you they they don't know their rights and they don't know what yeah yeah so i was like okay if you don't know them don't worry about it i'll let you know So I, how, how did you spend most of your time? What did you do? Did you, did you, what you say you were, in fact, that was part of what you were doing. You were supporting and helping people. Yes. I mean, the lockup. So in the intro wing, you you spend like two weeks in like the baby wing, which is what you call it. And you're locked up for 23 and a half hours a day. So you've got you have half an hour out. So you're in your cell on your own for the rest of the time, trying to find reasons to live, to be honest with you. And so I can't even melt. I slept a lot. And then I started sharing with somebody learning about their story. And then when I got moved to Gen Pop, we had two hours out of the cell. All right, people, basically there's something called a noise demo. I don't know if you know what a noise demo is. Do you know what a noise demo is? Go on, explain it. It's when comrades and communities basically surround a prison and create as much noise as physically possible to show people on the inside that they're not forgotten about and they're not, they're not alone. And when I was in there, there were two held for me. And so the, and the days after both of them happened, I had countless inmates approaching me saying okay you sound like you know what you're about can you help me with this 
And so then I was, when I was in gen pop, I was busy every day working on people's cases, which by the way is against the rules. You're not allowed to support other, anyway, it's a joke. You're not allowed to support yeah. other inmates, but going through their cases, looking at what their rights were. There were, there were inmates in there who had kids that they weren't able to see, which again was an infringement on their rights and, and their, you know, what they were allowed mm. to have. And so I pretty much kept myself busy with that, to be honest. And how did it change your perspective being in prison? How did it change you? I became, I didn't really know what my stance was on prison before I went in. I knew it didn't work because like 70% of people reoffend when they get out. So yeah. I knew that there's going to be something flawed. I knew about the dire conditions, but I didn't, I, I wanted to see for myself what the officers were like, what the structure was like. And I think I became more abolitionist as time went on, essentially. So rather yeah. than, I'm, I'm, I'm about reform because I th- I'd rather, like being in there, I'd rather conditions be improved whilst they're fighting for abolition. So I am for reform. But entire reform for reformation is is impossible. It needs to be abolished. So I'm definitely more strict in my views there. But I'm also conscious of the fact that I could do it again. Well, you could you could do time again. You'd be comfortable to do it. I'll, I'll go fast. I'm comfortable, but I would I wouldn't. I'm not as scared of prison as scared, I scared. Yeah, sure. Because you are a prison abolitionist in your in your LinkedIn bio, it says as an abolitionist, I am passionate about alternatives to prison, and have a keen interest in transformative justice. I'm hoping to improve my knowledge on law in order to help those targeted and failed by the criminal justice system. So what is the prison abolition? I mean, obvious question, but what is the prison abolition position? It's basically, in a whole, it's challenging the belief that caging and controlling people makes community feel safe. And that through this caging of people, this incarceration of people, that it reforms, that it's, that yeah. it's a good method of lowering crime. I mean, it's quite difficult because I mean, if we accept if we accept the premise that as we just spoke about it doesn't necessarily rehabilitate to the no. to the level it should that's one role prison isn't it i guess another role prison is is to protect the public to i mean when i then people would have to explain that to me what how how does incarcerating i mean i'm not being funny but the most of the people that i feel i'm safe from are walking the streets in uniform so I don't mm. feel I don't feel safe because Joe Bloggs down the road who nicked you know, had a bag of weed on him is in prison. Do you know what I mean? I what, don't about like- da- what about dangerous reoffenders though? Well, I don't know people like Ian Huntley or Harold Shipman or Rose West, people like that. Should should they be incarcerated? I mean, then again, so it, then that sparks the debate on whether you think prison is for punitive measures or for rehabilitation. Because rehabil- I can categorically say that rehabilitation is not happening, and we should look. And, at- and you could argue that some there are you know is every I mean the question the philosophical question is is everybody capable of rehabilitation that maybe some of those extreme cases aren't so what what do you do with those people well i'm also thinking like why is it that we think these people that commit crimes are in need of rehabilitation those extreme examples of people that are serial killers and rape you know rapists pedophiles let's park sort of you know generic low-level crime that may be created by poverty people specifically around violent sexual violent crimes doesn't prison serve a purpose for removing them from society so i think we've fallen into the 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 culture of looking at it in, in a binary in that we're we're always reactionary instead of thinking about prevention so i mean obviously we can't overturn these things overnight so when i think of people that are rapists and serial killers I, I, rather than think of okay how are we going to make the public feel safe what we should be having the conversation about is how can we stop these things from happening in future because you're individualizing. When you put someone in prison, you're just making an individual problem. We're not looking at the systemic issues, why people kill, why people murder, why people like rape. When, and we're never confronting those issues. Because if we were, then we put half of the Met in prison. So I, I don't, 
I think the conversation is angled towards trying to make abolition seem futile because that means we'd have loads of rapists going free, which mm. again is insane in itself because if you look at the percentages of rapists that go to trial and then go to prison, it's very minimal. So I, what's quite interesting is that when people ask me questions about abolition, that all, they yeah. do, all they do is centre on the extremes. Yeah. and Because I think because it's the obvious pushback, is it? The obvious pushback is if we're going to do away with prisons, yeah, what are you going to do with people that are very dangerous? That you you know you I, I you know I think you're right you know you can go back and you can look and you can analyze and and hopefully you can build a broader society where those people don't perhaps come to that extent but you know there is an argument in you know in in some elements of neurology that if you're if you're somebody that doesn't have any empathy or you're you know you're a psychopath or a sociopath that regardless of what happens you you know you have a propensity to kill propensity to control to rape to whatever and what are we going to do what are we going to do with these people if we haven't got any prisons. Support them from day one, and any like. But it's too late now. They've done it now. Like if it's okay. happened like now today, that you can't go back retrospectively, can you? What do you do with those people that are like in here and now? If you were if you were a victim, or you you had a brother or a sister, you know, if you were a mother or a father that, that had a, somebody who was a victim of an Ian Huntley or a shipment or whatever, do you know what I mean? That, that I guess that's where the the argument falls down a bit. Hundred percent. I mean, and also, I mean, you'd struggle to find quite a straight answer in terms of that because, like, when someone asks me that, I'm like, to be fair, if someone had murdered my mum, mm. I'd want them to be punished. But then also, yeah, that, I, but then that's my ego getting in the way. That's not yeah. benefiting society, and that's not benefiting. But to if you ask most people, I'm, you know, if you, and you've been inside, if you ask most people in prison what they do with somebody that was a paedophile, well, you know, or you had or sexual, you know, they do they 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 dish out their own, you know, justice, they don't they? They batter them and then they would move on. They, yeah. they, 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 they punish briefly and then they move on. They don't incarcerate them and then continually punish them every single day. I think it's just strategy to say, okay, what about rape? I mean, there's a really good book called What About the Rapists? But basically yeah. we focus on the extremities, on on the minority of, of like murderers and stuff. We are not then, we are being distracted and we're not confronting the real issues at hand that the people aren't being housed, people aren't, aren't safe, people aren't being paid properly. We need to look at the reasons and the root causes to why people None. turn towards crime. And only then, when we confront those systemic exploits, can we actually move forward into a for a prisonless society. I mean, those things can be true, though, can't they? Both those things can be true that, you know, obviously poverty and crime is a correlated thing. But yeah. some of these other crimes we're talking about, you know, aren't necessarily so. Are, are more, you know, um, is to, to do with the perhaps the makeup or the background or a combination of both of people. Not, are, the extremes. You know, I think. I like. I think just focusing on on the extreme, like on the on the rare murders, really yeah. is distracting us from having proper conversations about what our society looks like and how we're supporting people before it even gets to that point. Why are we all about? reaction rather than prevention i do, like we're not we're being reactive as opposed to proactive every person's story i listen to in prison and they you know they talk about their childhood and they would talk about their adolescence and like and situations that they were in and there yeah. were so many times where like support networks can intervened and have kind of stopped so much of the violence that ensued that so much of the crime that inevitably happened yeah. and then they don't they just they i and also i don't think i, I don't think it's on the the tories priority list because i mean list trust invested so much money into what they called mega prisons yeah because they fully intended on just punishing people and they knew that the toys were running you know britain into the bloody ground they knew that people were going to turn to crime because it's just physically impossible to live in this country there are far more things you can do to be illegal in this country than any in western europe so yeah. we're sort of you could argue we're sort of criminalizing a, a population 
Um, yeah. And there is, and clearly, what there is is a disproportionate amount of people from low social economic backgrounds in prison. There's no doubt about that. There's a massive data to indicate people that are excluded from school, the, the prison pipeline. There's a conveyor belt of this stuff. It, it, you know, it's something new, and yet we still try to avoid the facts. Is there anybody that you think could go though? Are there anybody that you think I don't know that 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 should be sent to to prison? Say I don't know, racist and violent police. Maybe, maybe, you know, Wayne Cousins himself should, should he be sent to prison? Criminal yeah. criminal bankers, modern day slave traders. Are there, you know, are there stuff people that you do feel that you know that in terms of your politics and in terms of your moral compass that you think well, they should be banged up or they should be you know something should happen to them? You're passionate about Sarah Everard issue. That's what brought you out. You know, Wayne Cousins, you know, you know, or the, the fellow that, you know, George Floyd, I can't remember his name. You know, surely, you know, could that, should those people be sent to prison? Well, no, because then you're individualising police violence and it creates this false distinction between good police who allegedly keep us safe and bad police who are the unusual cases and that's why they're going to prison rather than actually... Oh, come on, come on. You can't say, you can't compare like a Bobby on the beat that turns up a bit late for somebody's iceberg to Wayne Cousin, surely to God. Hang on a minute. So how how can you sign up to a, a an institution that is fundamentally and at its core racist and sexist and then say you're one of the good ones? And some of them don't see that it is. I've bought, you know, everyday coppers. Everyday coppers are upholding these sexist and racist laws, though. And this new bill that's going through where they have to over-police black people, they have to parade working-class areas, they know what they're doing. And so, and if they don't, then get out of the fucking job. Do you know what I mean? You can't, <laughs> you, you're upholding you think by definition, okay, but so by definition of joining the police in itself, you've accepted those things and actually you're, by <laughs> definition, you're guilty for being a member or being, sorry, working for the police. 100%. You can't join an... Inst- like It's like, okay, I mean, I'll join the KKK, but actually I'm one of the good ones. There's no such thing. That institution is, is in its core, racist, sexist, and exploitative. You can't then join up and be like, I'm one of the good ones, because by be- by being simply involved, you are one of the bad ones. How can... That, that makes no sense to, jo- to, join, to join and be like, I can do some good from within. My, my point is more to say all police are, you know, terrible and, and, and to sort of... You know, you have to accept there's a sliding scale of extremities within that. Or, or maybe you don't. I don't know. I mean, I think the old cops are bastards thing it does seem to polarise people because it is saying like you're, you're, you're implying that every individual cop is a bastard. That's not what the saying is about. It's saying that as soon when you choose to become a police officer, you are police officers. The role of a police officer is a is a bastard. You're a bastard. You're literally betraying your own fucking class. And also you're targeting minority communities. Okay. Got it. After the revolution, yeah, yeah. Say, say we've got rid of the police. Yeah. What comes next? Surely there needs to be, you know, if you look at any country in history when there's been any coup, takeover, revolution, one force just replaces another, doesn't it? How will you exist as a society without some form of policing? However that, however that looks, you know, whether that's from, you know, the falling of the Iron Curtain in Russia, whether that's, you know, you know, go to Somalia now in Mogadishu, where there's a sort of there's a power vacuum. You know, go to some of the Latin American countries. There, there always needs to be some force, doesn't there? I don't, I mean, how would we know? I mean, I don't think we've ever thought about it as a community. I mean, if you look at in in, in grassroots organisations, obviously we 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 tackle this issue. Like, okay, if we've got to abolish the police, then what would we do? What would we replace it with? First of all, that's an issue in itself. Stop thinking of, about replacing something. If something doesn't work, you get rid of it, and then you move forward, and then maybe think of something else that would work. But you're not essentially replacing the police. You're thinking of a whole new, complete structure that is completely foreign to what the police. Yeah, industry- sure. So, what emerges from that then? That's the question. 
What, what will that be? Because or, or would you not need anything? Why, um, why, why do we need policing? Why do we need policing? What's what's policing doing for us right now? Well, I don't know. I just think that if if you remove that, would do you not think that people would feel that vacuum and fill that space anyway? Well, arguably, but it's got anything's got to be better than what's currently offered. We can't keep the existence of something that's bad because we can't think of an alternative. I mean, if you look at Norway, for instance, their their criminal justice system is completely different from ours. And for like for one tiny example, there was one chi- there was one child that killed another child, and rather than go to the police, they dealt with it as a community, and they all decided that rather than punish this kid, that then he clearly needed support and intervention, and them as a community sort of de- did rehabilitation by themselves. Yeah, and then they so, were so, okay. So some community based self regulation. Yeah, um, for example, I mean, because yeah. because there, there are instances within grassroots organizations where we have conflicts and and you know that things get kick off and get out of hand and we as a community have discussions it's called reformist justice like reformative justice and it's talking about how 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 we got to this place where there's such a conflict and we deal with it like adults and talk to each other and like confront the roots of the problems we don't go to an independent body which we know is already exploitative to then take control because they perpetuate exploitation so why would we go to them we deal with it as communities we deal with it as communities. in fact anything that bad happens to me i the last people i would go to is the which, police which if you re, re, you know if, if you rail back arguably in our sort of human history that's probably what people did it's still what tribal communities still do to this day isn't it it's probably um, what happened originally it is an approach that i think this effective in large part but the problem does become when it's, when, you know, again, you'll say I'm going to the severe end, but when certain crimes are more severe, that's where it becomes a bit trickier, I think, where, you know, victims don't want to, you know, meet perpetrators. Yeah, I mean, and it it makes them feel safe to know that they're far away and they're behind bars and they're not going to be attacked by that person. I mean, there is an element, I think it's superficial. You're basically, you're punishing an individual. You're not tackling the issue of rape and male violence and and, can you, you do know, both though? Can you do both at the same time? I don't. I don't. Well, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't. And like, there, there are some people in my life who I'm like, oh God, I wish he was behind bars because I would feel safer. But then I'm like, well, it doesn't really confront the problem. It makes me feel safe as an individual, but it's not. It's not supporting my society and my community. And that's what I think. That's what. That's how we need to be thinking. But you're a feminist. You know, you said yourself, you're you're a feminist or somebody who, who's been, you know, active in you know women's justice rights and stuff like that. If there was somebody that was perhaps in a dangerous situation with a with a husband or a partner or a, or or even a wife, whatever, that they felt they were under siege and being stalked and being, you know, all that sort of stuff. They 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 want them removed from the situation. Would yeah. you have some empathy or understanding with that? Yeah, I, I empathise, but then also. Again, if you look at if you look at stats, when people then go to the police and seek help from them, it never happens. We need to be looking at the issues of male violence and why men stalk and why men kill. That's Again, great. you can do both, though, can't you? That that's great to do. But if I'm shitting myself because I know someone's going to throw a brick from my window at this moment, it's going to come come in. Yeah. yeah, I'm all for having a conversation about that, and I think yeah, that's yeah. right. But but in the in, in in that sort of when as 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 the stuff's happening here and now, I just need protecting. Okay, so that person's going to go behind bars for six months. What happens after the six months? Well, I mean that. Yeah, I mean then I guess that becomes a conversational debate around yeah, prison, rehabil- prison. rehabilitation, doesn't it? I suppose, or maybe there's a bit of time away you can get on with your life. But yeah, it's, it's there's no easy solution. But I think that yeah. sometimes by taking the sting out of the immediate, I think it's a bit like Ukraine, isn't it? Lots of people talking about you know we should be exploring peace and we should be doing that, which we should be. But when bombs are falling on your head. 
in the moment. You know, you haven't got time for that. You just need to get out or you need to kind of escape. And I think that that that's where there has to be a, a balance between having good ideas and good strategy and, as, as, as you know, like you're setting out long-term vision for this, but also being able to respond to the immediate concerns in the here and now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and re- responding to the immediate concerns would be all well and good if, if, as you said, we could do both and then prevent things from happening in the future. So maybe a combination yeah. of the two. I don't know. I really don't know. What's coming next for you? What sort of life around the corner? Do you have any sort of plans? Or are you? And the critical question is, are you still protesting with the same vigour? No comment. Fucking hell. All I will say is prisons beware because I've not forgotten what I saw and I'm not going quietly. So Ooh. I said to them, put me in prison would be the worst thing you could do. <laughs> and it is because now I know what is what they're doing to people in there. And you've just yeah. given me a reason to protest. So I'll probably be backing the court in five years' time. So but, you're, but that's what you're doing. That's where you're putting your focus. You're, you're supporting and helping people. You want to create some reform. Definitely. Right. Lovely. Thank you, Jasmine. And uh, yeah, good luck with it all. Cheers, and mate. And maybe, maybe one day we'll both join each other in a prisonless, policeless world. One can hope. Many thanks to this week's guest on Bristol Unpacked, Jasmine York. And we'll be back next time with another great guest and a fantastic topic. I'm Neil Maggs. Big thanks to our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, and to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music. <laughs>